Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chairman of the Humanities Forum, which brings you today's program straight from San Francisco and London. So we are doing one of our many online programs. We're getting close to 300 since the uh, virus crisis started in March. And uh, we are taking advantage of the fact that we're doing it online by bringing authors from all over the world. And, and today we have Edmund Fawcett from London, the author of many, many books. As a self-described left-wing liberal, he has written a book on conservatism, The Fight for a Tradition. So Edmund, tell us a little bit about an overview of the book first. And then Thanks we'll very much. Questions. Very pleased to be here with you and with um, others. So, okay. Well, my book is, I trust, a timely history of the political right in France, Britain, Germany, and the United States. Its message in a sentence is this. Conservatism has always been as much a source of disruption and turbulence as it has been a wise avoidance of heedless change. I think once that idea is grasped. I think it's much easier to understand both the appeal and the up and down history of conservatism since its origin in the early 19th century. On reaching the present, my history spotlights um, a question that hangs over liberal democracy in Europe and the United States. Which conservatism is it to be? Is it to be the broadly speaking liberal kind uh, that um, helped sustain liberal democracy after 1945? Or is it to be an illiberal, one nation kind, claiming to speak for, in the name of what it calls the people? I split the conservative story into four um, periods, given sharp dates, um, artificially sharp dates for the sake of clarity. First period is frontal resistance to liberal modernity, 1830 to 1880. Second period is adaptation, compromise, and catastrophe, 1880 to 1945. The third period is political dominance and intellectual recovery, 1945 to 1980. And the last part, 1980 to now, is the story of the contest between what I perhaps puzzlingly call the liberal center conservatism and the hard right. Um, in some very general ground floor sense, uh, conservatism speaks to a kind of universal human desire for order and stability, for tomorrow to be like today. Politically, conservatives have indeed stood for order and stability, for the rule of law, for prevailing um, distributions of property, for familiar customs, for effective economy that pays the bills and puts food in the shops. But at the same time, with, with quickening pace later in the 19th century, those very aims required conservatives to embrace what they'd initially shunned, feared and shunned, namely modern liberal capitalism, this fantastic machine of innovation and prosperity that is forever turning society upside down and creating new tomorrows. So conservatives, to sum up, uh, offer stability and disruption, continuity and change. The tensions, the difficulties, I think everything that makes the conservative story interesting comes back to that basic conflict. Conservatives has promised and still promises national community and global markets. Um, 
social peace and meritocratic competition, competence in office and yet suspicion of government, cultural stability and continual cultural change. As a left-wing liberal, I'm not promising that my account or my story is neutral. I trust it's subjective. If that's worked, I hope that conservatives will recognize themselves in their tradition. I hope that the left will um, see uh, its opponent's position, which like careless chess players, they're very often prone to ignore. Mm. Um, I wrote the book with a... um, Uh, comradely question for the left. If we're so smart, how come we're not in charge? I I wrote it so the question for the right could be as sharp as possible. Will conservatives reconstruct a center conservatism or join the rush to an illiberal hard right? So that's the sort of shape and range of the book. Well, it's a a very interesting way of of presenting the idea. And um, I think a lot of people will understand this tradition a lot better by the end of this hour because it's it's so different than what people think, especially what you said about capitalism. Everyone yeah. assumes that conservatives are totally on, on the side of laissez-faire capitalism and so on. And they did not start that way at all. In a way, it's just because that's the current institution, that's the status quo that they now support it. So conservatives really started uh, as monarchists and, and, and uh, in, in favor of the established church, basically, and, and any other institutions that were uh, in power at the time. They didn't want to change. If, you, if we go yes, back, let's, let's talk before the 19th century for just a little while. So you, sure. you, start, you start in the 17th and 18th centuries and the sort of the, the foundational ideas uh, of modern times for conservative thought. So tell us a little bit about Maestra and Burke and, and uh, the, the, the ideas that, were, that you illuminate as to what drove them. Well, um, with, with a small course correction, I think mm-hmm. I think that's right. I call them. I call um, thinkers like Mestre and Burke, um, Madison. These are in a way conservative forerunners. It mm-hmm. may seem like a very kind of picky semantic point, but I think conservatism, like liberalism, its opponent, these are nineteenth-century phenomena. Mm-hmm. You don't really get them before. Why do I say that? I think for two reasons, which come back to your question. One is that both of them are responses to a completely new condition of society. Um, Great population growth, great productivity growth, much of it driven by modern industrializing capital. Mm -hmm. And the folk who wrote in the 18th century, like Burke and Mestre, even Madison, they didn't, they couldn't imagine this. Mm-hmm. However, they had very wise, uh, or at least for them, very pertinent points to make about something else, the French Revolution. This was very important. Yeah, the, the, the difference between how the French Revolution, how the American Revolution was perceived, that's one of, one of the things indeed, I really want to talk indeed, about. So let's, let's get into that because it, it seems crucial. Indeed. I mean, very quickly, both Burke and Mestre, writing in the 1790s, were were critics of the French Revolution. They weren't weren't saying, you know, chopping off people's heads is a bad way to do politics. They weren't saying anything as crude as that. Mm -hmm. Their point was that essentially that the French Revolution marked an entirely new kind of politics. 
It marked a kind of politics in which brainy people, intellectuals, um, lawyers, journalists, began to say how politics ought to be conducted. And to Mestre and Burke, how politics ought to be constructed or ought to be conducted was given. Mm-hmm. Burke, an English, Irish, conservative, a Tory, um, it, 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 well, how was how, how politics would be conducted given? It was given by custom. It was given by tradition. For Mestre, a, a, a Savoyard um, Catholic, uh, how was um, politics to be conducted? It was to be conducted by, in essence, sort of relig- divine authority. Mm-hmm. Um, in both their cases, they thought that ordinary folk were simply not capable of organizing their own affairs. They needed to be guided. Of course, the French Revolution, in a broad sense, was against that. It thought, no, 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 we're all part of politics. We can all argue about it. We can all pitch in. And to come back to Madison, Madison was very interesting because unlike Mestre and Burke, who really sort of held up their hands like this Mm -hmm. change and said, we want to stop this. And of course, it was vain. Madison thought of constitutions, in other words, a big change, an American revolution, in order to preserve a certain stability, a certain authority in government. So he was, in a way, thinking of constitutions to avoid revolution. But the three of them were all in advance of conservatism. They gave, they handed on to conservatives in the in the nineteenth century. Um, all of those thinkers, first thinkers, handed on a set of ideas, if you will, which were very useful for conservatives. And, you know, suspicion of intellectuals, the importance of custom, the importance of stability. But I think they weren't, strictly speaking, themselves conservatives. Um, we'll, we'll move to the past again uh, briefly, but I want to talk about Madison and the Constitution. You know, uh, one of the things that's uh, helpful uh, for Americans to understand uh, clearly is that the founders did not try to create, you know, a wide open democracy. They, they were aiming at something else altogether. And, and Madison and his constitutionalism was a form of, of, of how, to, how to control this situation. So maybe say a little bit about that. I think and that's a very pertinent point. Um, and it, it kind of broadens as we go later into the history. Mm-hmm. If, you could, if you could say liberalism and democracy, or conservatism, conservatism and liberalism are on this side. Mm-hmm. Democracy is a very different idea. You could think of conservatives and liberals um, and you know, pre-conservatives in Madison's time, if you will. This is an argument about how to do politics among a very small group of people. Mm. They're almost all men. In the United States, they're almost all white. When indeed across Europe, they're almost all white. They're almost all men. It's a tiny, educated, propertied part of society. Of course, there are exceptions and it's becoming more spread. But by and large, this is a minority preoccupation. What does democracy do? Democracy in the broad sense, completely blows that argument apart. Mm-hmm. It says every last one of us in society have a voice. We have something to say in politics. We have something to say to our bosses. We have something to say in cultural and ethical life. We're not 
dominated, we're not told what to do, and that's an end of it. And above all, the point about democracy is a matter of range. It includes everybody, whereas both the conservatives and the early liberals didn't see it that way. Mm -hmm. If you could see it this way, liberalism and conservatism lay out a feast. Democracy draws up the guest list. (laughs) Well, and and certainly at the beginning, uh, when people were even considering democracy, they weren't considering it as a universal right, as as we very well know. It took a long time for the vote to get to everybody. um, And and we're still arguing about it, right? And indeed, I mean, the... um, I think, I mean, historians and and, um, others among your listeners may correct me, but I think think there were property qualifications for the vote until Mm the 1820s and 30s. In other words, 40 years after the, um, 30, 40 years after the Constitution. Um, Blacks were disenfranchised, of course. Uh, Women didn't get the vote until 1918. So Mm. in terms of electoral democracy, um, the United States was a very slow developer, as was Britain. Um, In 1918 in Britain, I think still something like 20% of of, um, men didn't have the vote. Women didn't get the vote until then. It, it's interesting. It seems to me that the, the process is as a culture gets more and more confident, it, it, it allows more and more people to take place because they don't feel that that stable status quo that they're supporting, whether they're, uh, you know, where, wherever they are on the scale, a lot of people have this desire for the status quo to keep continuing. Um, but and when people are confident, they don't think it's going to be disrupted by sharing. Um, you which, see, you see is, that arc. You see that arc. Mm-hmm. in the conservative story. Again, go back to the sort of pre-conservative Madison. Um, he, he and the, the founders were, were immensely um, wise in the way um, that, that they provided these counterbalances. Um, you, you may feel that you know, too, too resistant to change, whatever, but they are, it, it is a remarkable mechanism. And one of the overriding concerns, particularly for Madison, was the fear that um, majorities, minorities with a point of, uh, a valid point of view would get kind of squashed out by majorities. Um, But to go forward, um, that arc of growing confidence is very, very important for conservatives Mm -hmm. because they start out rather timid and afraid in completely new circumstances. After all, you're looking at people who, um, they're the, the, the sons and grandsons of people who simply by nature expected to rule. It mm-hmm. never occurred to them that they would have to justify themselves. I mean, they might have to justify themselves to some dynastic contender who said, no, you're not the right king, this one is. You know, mm-hmm. Of course there was conflict. But in terms, anything like we think of today as rulers needed, needing to justify themselves, it, it didn't really happen. This was a class used to ruling. However, they were now the outs and the liberals were the ins. So conservatives started out very underconfident um, in, their, in that. They were also very frightened of the people. You know, they knew a great deal about people one by one. You know, the boss knew his workers, mm-hmm. the squire knew his tenants, etc. The priest knew his parishioners. 
But in terms of this growing new thing called modern society, they hadn't a clue. And they had no sociologists. They didn't have a lot of data. So they really, they had to, they had to rely on quite a lot of imagination and fear. And over the 18th century, when they got into trouble, they tended to get into trouble by exaggerating the danger of the people. But Something by the end of the 19th century, they'd overcome that, the conservatives. Mm-hmm. And in Britain, certainly in France, but we needn't, needn't perhaps go into that, but in Britain, you had Lord Salisbury, who was in the middle of the 19th century as a young man, ferocious anti-democrat. I mean, unpublishable, the kinds he said, the <laughs> kinds he said about people. By the time he was taking off this, at the end of the 19th century, he and his agents had started a modern democratic machine with almost all the familiar things that we expect of it that slowly um, you know, took over and began to dominate uh, um, British elections. Something similar happened in your country with, um, at the time of McKinley when they developed the Republican Party into an effective modern machine. Mark Hanna, um, Cleveland man, at a mm-hmm. time when... Um, you know, the industrial Midwest is one of the hearts of the country. Um, he, he, Very hard to be a successful political party and call the people the deplorables. You know, it's, a, you, know it, it's, you, you lose way too many of the voters. Absolutely. And this is, this is something that is, is quite difficult for us on the left, I think, to understand, is how successful the right has been at listening to and, you know, winning the votes of that... Slippery phrase, the people. Mm-hmm. But anyway, by the end of the 19th century, certainly in the United States and in Britain, they had very effective parties, and indeed in France. Germany was a more difficult case. That reminds me, I mean, you, you set out the book as a, as a study of all four of those countries. Um, and, and for good reason, those are the, the ones that have been put that in for a long period of time. You've got a couple hundred years of history of, of an attempt in all those countries through this democracy. I thought what was interesting was that the rise and fall of conservatism, although not um, you know, exactly at the same year or the month or anything like that, but the waves in all four countries seem to be fairly right on. And I, I want, want you to talk a little bit about that pattern because it's not, we're, we're experiencing another version of it right now. Um, and maybe why, why that happens, at least to the extent that's possible to say. I think I think that's right. I think you have you have in the conservative tradition you have a kind of a long wave that works itself out over the 19th century as conservatives become in effect a capitalist party. They agree with free market liberals mm-hmm. that capitalism, finance capital, industrial capital, these are the good way to go. You know, there's no resisting it. And they had yeah. resisted, that was a, a pillar of their resistance before that period of time, before. Uh, they, 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 tended to, they tended to support, um, they tended to support institutions and interests that didn't really do a lot for modern capitalism, mm-hmm. like um, you know, the large landed interest, um, the, uh, the church, um, the monarchy, Mm-hmm. In Britain and in France, um, the the um, you know the ultras, as they were called, who were constantly trying to bring back a, a, a monarch, a monarchy that was really kind of walking dead. Mm-hmm. Um, 
even at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, this was not important for capitalism. Mm -hmm. It wasn't helpful. So, so they did um, have to learn that lesson that you couldn't um, fight, in, fight, fight in vain to defend dying institutions. Um, but they, they, they did come to see that they were defenders of capitalism. And in some sense, to use this puzzling phrase, they became sort of liberal conservatives in the sense that liberals are for the free market. Mm -hmm. They didn't become liberal in every way. They often you know, were very illiberal. They continued to be very illiberal in social matters, in matters of punishment, in matters of sexual morality. Mm -hmm. um, almost all the conservative parties took a very long time, indeed into the late 20th century, ready to get that message or to mm -hmm. accept that. But in, in the core element of economics, free market, and the functioning of pluralistic institutions, by the end of the 20th century, early 19th century, the Republicans in the United States, the Tories in Britain, and the conservative parties of the right in France had by and large become what I call, or blended with, right-wing liberals. However, there were two difficulties for them. <laughs> One is um, that, as, as I said, modern liberal society seems to ups, does upset a great many things which conservatives hold dear. Mm -hmm. um, cultural tradition, um, ethical authorities, um, order and stability in society. Um, and, and this has been an abiding puzzle that you could say that given their political dominance in the 20th century, that conservatives have created a modern world at which they don't feel completely at home. Mm -hmm. And so that um, tension, those hesitations, always allowed two things for the mainstream conservative parties who have a fantastically successful long run of governing. One is the outsiders in politics who sort of don't buy into what I call the liberal status quo. They're always making trouble. You saw this in the 1890s, uh, particularly in France and Germany. Uh, you saw it in, again, in France and Germany in the 1920s and 30s. You see it now in the rise of what I call the hard right, you know, mm. very disaffected, um, um, angry right that um, sees itself as somehow the people against the elites. A second element, um, so that that's something that is common to all the countries and mm -hmm. runs through the history. But the second approach, and this is, I think, quite interesting, is what I call cultural and ethical criticism. And this runs again through the history to take some British examples from Coleridge through T.S. Eliot, who was American, but it became British, mm -hmm. through to the late Roger Scruton. There's a very, very strong, eloquent thread of conservative thinking, which is that plural, modern, diverse life is an ugly or wrong way to live. Mm -hmm. This is not essentially a political, or at least in a macro political sense. It's, it's not that kind of, of movement, but it's much more what I, a cultural criticism. It's a way we're doing it wrong. We're leading the wrong kinds of life. And this has been very, very powerful. 
and you see I think it. that word the word wrong that you use. I mean, I think that that's the crucial thing because it implies a whole bunch of assumptions. Be, be, and not afraid of saying you're wrong. You're wrong, yeah. There's a right and a wrong way to do things. Um, that's a very well, good point. One distraction, uh, you know, just for a second here, is because people don't talk about this issue, cultural issue, as much as other ones. Uh, but legitimacy, you know, uh, to, to, to be a legitimate birth versus non-legitimate birth. And if you would go back to our childhoods, you know, legitimacy was a fairly important thing. And in the world today, uh, there are countries where the majority of the children are not legitimate. Um, oh, I see. Sorry. From, and, and, and yet I wasn't with you for a moment. I was, we're, to, we're talking about children, not politics. No, 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 no. Sorry. Yeah, children. Yeah. It's, it's a legitimacy bastard idea, you know, that, that, that right. it used to be a, a really, really big issue. And it's now not disappearing because there are countries, like I, I just looked up the stats, um, that China and India, it's still under 1% uh, of the children are illegitimate. Whereas in the United States, it's near 40%. Um, in parts of Europe, it's the same. In, it's over yeah. 50% in some of the Scandinavian and in South America, which is or has been a Catholic country, uh, very Christian, it's over 60, 70%. So it, it's such a fundamental shift, obviously, uh, over the history of humanity, we've continued to make children in many different ways, and, and there's been lots of different cultural institutions. And, but this and marriage is, takes many forms. It, yeah, it, it was totally legitimate 3,000 years ago to, to, to have many uh, wives, uh, and only in a few places, many husbands. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of thing. And, and so children, we keep, we keep making children lots of different ways. So I thought it was a good, a good custom to talk about, as you know, that this is one of the things that has changed dramatically and the conservatives really don't spend, uh, they, they complain about it, but they complain about other things much more than they complain about that. That's true. I think, uh, I mean, I'm in my mid seventies mm-hmm. and if I think of the culture, the ethical and ethical change in society, in my life, in one life, it's mm-hmm. quite extraordinary. There's been an acceleration that is quite extraordinary. Personally, I, I think it's welcome. I hear mm. open-mindedly many of the difficulties. Um, I, I think on the historical point, um, as it were, bastardy legitimacy, these mattered hugely to um, royal dynasties and people with a lot of property. Mm-hmm. But the, the bastardy and legitimacy didn't matter so much to most folk. Mm-hmm. So, you know, push, push the centuries back. Indeed, the, 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 the solemnization of marriage is a relatively, it's not, it's not modern, but it was a sort of rel- relatively late development for ordinary folk. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about, you know, the ruling classes. So all, all of these moral, um, all of these moral ideas um, are kind of, continuous in character, marriage mm. then, legitimacy then, but their the, the, the content changes. I, I think what is disturbing and is indeed disturbing for many conservatives, probably not just conservatives, is when change accelerates. Mm. And I think it has accelerated extraordinarily in the last several decades. I'm not but saying it's what, a bad thing, but I think getting right. used to it is clearly difficult. Right. And it requires a lot of it requires you know a lot of arguing. 
Yeah, yeah. And as you point out, though, it's it's not that this is a brand new thing. It's it's just a return uh, to to you know, I mean, the thin veneer of civilization, as they say, is is is, is disappearing. Yeah, but, I mean, that was a rather that was a sort of slightly pointy-headed point of mine a moment ago. It's not very comforting to be told. Um, um, you know, oh, they didn't have marriage in the 10th century. <laughs> okay, Edmund, but, you know, we're living in the 21st. Yes, and before that, they used to sacrifice the children, so let's forget about that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the, the historical point has its limits. So so let's go back to the yeah. current time, then. Um, the, the hard right is... is in, uh, I'm stuck between two different things. Before I wanted to go to the, the current hard right, I wanted you to talk about Bismarck a little bit in Germany. Oh, okay. You make very good points on Bismarck, and I, I think we're not going to cover the German part of it as much as we, we cover the others because it's a little bit different. But uh, it, it is interesting to see in a country where it wasn't a country, basically, how the Prussians moved it to Germany, you know, yeah. and, then, and then what the consequences were in the 20th century, basically. Well, the German the German case is very difficult because of because of uh, what happened in what happened what they did um, in from 1933 to 1945. I mean, they visited on themselves and the world a kind of worse catastrophe than isn't imaginable. Mm -hmm. They recovered, you know, quite. I, I worked in Germany many years, and I, they recovered quite quite brilliantly in many ways. But you know, that happened. And it's very difficult because that happened to see the history beforehand mm -hmm. as in any way but a main road leading to that self-inflicted catastrophe. And I, I think historians know that and avoid it. But, mm -hmm. you know, writing a, a, a general book of the kind I did, even I found that difficult. There were um, conservative traditions in Germany. These were not fascistic traditions in any way. They were, they were conservative traditions. They were landed, they were connected with um, Eastern Germany to some extent, you know, the, the East Prussian lands. But on the other hand, they were also very strong in Hamburg, in um, Dusseldorf, in um, centers of industry. They, they were very like the parties that we talked of earlier, you know, McKinley and um, Salisbury's party. Um, Bismarck is a very interesting figure because he... Um, is, is a case where you had a really quite authoritarian figure who is nevertheless uh, governing under the rule of law, um, governing with um, quite a number of civic and local freedoms, personal freedoms. So was this somehow a an authorita completely authoritarian society? No. Hmm. Was it an authoritarian government? Yes, up to a point. But when we remember that Germany was unified out of many, many different um, uh, princedoms, kingdoms, uh, cities, and so on. And indeed, up until 1918, when the, what was called um, the, the, the empire fell apart, it was um, both a kind of uh, governed at the center um, by Bismarck and, and the Reichstag, the, the, the national parliament, and by all the localities. So actually, it was a sort of Rube Goldberg construction. So when one, you know, one thinks of authoritarians and one thinks of somebody being able to pick up a telephone and give orders, which are then carried out, it wasn't like that at all. Mm -hmm. So Bismarck was both constrained by 
the rule of law and by freedoms, but also by simply the circumstances of this construction. So I think he's an interesting example. And there were German thinkers, conservatives in the 19, in, sorry, in the, in the 19th century, who argued for that kind of conservatism. They said, don't fuss so much with institutions, with democratic accountability. Focus on maintenance of personal freedoms and the rule of law. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting how I think you mentioned it as well, that the Hanoverians uh, did better in, in uh, England than they did in their own country. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I think it's crucial, and I think the reason that people try to uh, stay away from a, a more nuanced uh, idea about uh, Germany's history is that everybody wants to believe it will never happen in their country, right? Yeah. And, and, and yet Germans, uh, the, the German civilization uh, was not all that much different uh, than the French and the uh, British oh. Americans at this, uh, until the post-World War I uh, problems, you know, and, and they right. I mean, there, there is a, I mean, there is a strain of historical thinking which survives, that somehow that, that you know, the, the self-inflicted disaster of 33 to 45 was was baked into German history. And then there's mm -hmm. another strain which, which, while allowing for long-term trends, sees huge contingency in what happened. And, yeah. You know, when you look carefully at the, the mistakes that were made and the chances for um, continuing the this fragile liberal democracy, the missed chances, you see contingency played a huge part. I think that the... But I think that's interesting. I mean, you bring up a point that mm -hmm. I think is worth stressing, that um, particularly on the left, they kick around the word fascist, the right. label fascist, with abandon. You know, you just... I mean, you have similar abuse on the right. I'm not making a party, partisan point. Um, but on, on the left, you know, so-and-so is a fascist. This, this, is, this is very misleading. And indeed, <laughs> even, even the... Um, um, even the hard right now, you know, in 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 Germany, the um, and in France, uh, the, the hard right represented by the Trump Republican Party or the Brexit Repu Brexit Tories in Britain, mm. um, it's not fascist in any historical sense. However, there are um, certain common appeals to this mythical being, the people. Mm. And that's, that's quite something to keep your ear open to. The other thing is, remember, fascism was historically specific. It arose in, across Europe and in Germany in the 1920s and 30s after a disastrous war and uh, fueled by a catastrophic economic slump. So, and it had a whole series of particulars that you know, don't have modern present-day counterparts. Yeah, it's, that said... It's a crucial to, to, to see those nuances because, like you said, if you just, if you just uh, revert always to calling someone either a communist or a fascist, uh, you know, it, it, it's not helpful because there's a whole spectrum that we're always dealing with. And, and, and awesome. it, you, know, you have this whole spread of personalities that are comfortable in different ranges. And if we, if we see how big that center is, I think that's where the stability yeah. of democratic civilizations come about. And I, I also think that the way that Germans... Uh, treated uh, the post-World War II situation once, once uh, you know, we got to the mid-50s and said, you know, taught all the children that this was a terrible thing and, and, and uh, made it very clear and, and lived 
up to you know what the problem was, etc., and and recreated a, a very democratic society. Uh, I think that shows the strength of the civilization that existed prior to the disaster. I, I completely yeah. agree. I completely yeah. agree. And the, you know there was a there were legitimate there were legitimate quarrels, partly generational, but the legitimate quarrels in the sixties about mm -hmm. the speed and thoroughness of Germany's historical reckoning with itself. But, you know, that quarrel, which seemed very important at the time, now seems less important in that I think people would agree with fully with what you've just said, mm. that there has been a historical reckoning, and not just a kind of intellectual admission or presidential statements, which are important, but uh, the creation of a society that in many ways tried to make sure that this could never happen again. Mm -hmm. um, just, just throw in there a, a related point to the this never happening again. Um, there are lots of ways that liberal democracies can weaken and become corroded and even die. They don't have to become fascist. There's yeah. a, a counterpart foolishness um, uh, on the right, um, if you will, um, to, to the mudslinging of the left, you're fascist. The counterpart foolishness is to say, okay, the hard right, it's very troubling for conservatives, but look, it's not fascist. Phew, we can relax. <laughs> no, it's true, they're not fascists, but we can't relax. Or at least if you're a certain kind of liberal-minded conservative, you shouldn't relax, okay? So I, I feel- that they're illiberal. Yeah, this whole this whole thing about fascism maybe is better to park. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's hard to resist name calling in politics, apparently. Absolutely, no, no. I mean, politics is partly name calling. <laughs> <laughs> what would it be without it? Um, so, uh, give us an idea about in all four countries, uh, the hard right is 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 uh, in in yeah. power uh, in in a way in the United States. It's in power in the United in the United Kingdom. Um, it has a, a growing thing with uh, Le Pen's uh, group in in France, and it's a minority, but still growing at the time. A, a small minority in Germany. It's kind of interesting that that it's their their um, hatred for fascism is keeping that down. But it seems to me. But but to give us some nuances about these things. It's not none of them are fascist. Um, how, and, and, so they're, they're tending a little bit towards illiberal, you know, rather than a liberal approach. So why don't you give us a little nuance about how we should think about the, the, the different shifts and why they're taking place at the current time? Because it's a prosperous time. You know, it's, a, it's not, a, not a time of fear and depression and, and even war. No, I think, that's, I think that's quite right. And, you know, COVID, COVID is a huge disruption. We don't, mm -hmm. don't know. But let, let's sort of prescind from that. Go, yeah. go, go back. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. The hard right, um, the phrase now is, has gone into common currency. Mm -hmm. But um, I think a lot of people, particularly conservatives, are dubious of it. They think that there is something invented here, a chimera, some mythical beast that isn't really there. Uh, and indeed, when you look at the um, Republican Party, uh, that uh, of McConnell and um, later Trump. If you look at the um, uh, the Tory Party that, in in effect, has became the anti-European party in the last two or three years, 
if you look at the differences and similarities and then contrast them with the old French National Front, which has renamed itself National Rally, or with this smaller party in Germany, but still very strong, uh, mm. called the Alternative for Germany. There are so many differences of situation, history, language, even some policies, that you say, indeed, this mm. is a chimera. It's not actually this, con this contrast between liberal conservatism, center-minded conservatism, and the hard right is false. And there are many conservatives who say that. Against that, um, a few things. I would cite some conservative authorities, mm -hmm. <laughs> not, not me, but some conservative authorities yeah. who certainly think, they don't call it, but they certainly think there is a dangerous, illiberal, populistic hard right. Mm -hmm. um, in my country, um, Two examples are um, a wonderful journalist and writer, historian called Ferdinand Mount, who used to run um, Margaret Thatcher's um, think tank um, in, in Whitehall, in the government. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he he um, shakes his head. He's written furiously against the present um, Tory government. Um, indeed, um, I think he even um, used the phrase a kind of fascism light at one point, which I thought was rather ill-advised, but still. Uh, another person, another very good historian, Max Hastings, um, has said that, um, I think I quote him right, that um, Boris Johnson, the um, Tory prime minister, is ruling from the um, Trump playbook. So, you know, there um, ha ha elective harmonies. Um, in your country, George Will, David Brooks, mm -hmm. um, Ross Douthat, three generations of um, excellent conservative commentators have mm -hmm. all raised serious doubts about the character of Trump Republicanism or McConnell Republicanism. It's, mm -hmm. it's easy to get distracted by the figure of Trump. This was hit there before him and I think will outlast him. You know, they have said, this is something different. This is not us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we could go into a little bit more detail, but poss possibly it's too distracting. But there are similarities of policy and attitude, um, a, a one-nation approach to foreign policy, um, much less interest in multilateral solutions, multilateral institutions, um, much less readiness to stand up for the soft power of liberal democratic norms, um, and a rather kind of free-for-all, for careless um, interest in cozying up with autocracies, um, non-democracies, um, and in local terms, in domestic terms, you know, hostility to immigration, um, uh, wanting to limit welfare, um, and um, a, a set of, not, not so much policy, but a set of very common rhetorical themes in that we are not listened to, we are excluded, um, the heights of society government and have been captured by an uncomprehending, unhearing elite. Mm -hmm. These are completely common themes um, on, on the hard right. And you hear them, they can be played with great sophistication, but they're the same theme. So I, I feel this is not um, liberal. Um, and it's particularly not liberal in the way they are very happy to go after important liberal institutions. 
namely the free press, the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think I think liberals, whether cons- whether right wing or left wing, whether conservative or not, should worry about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the institutions uh, are, are crucial. Well, I did uh, read a, a study uh, that I thought supports the point that you're making about that that uh, Trump's republicanism existed before he took yeah. hold of it. Um, there was a study that asked the question, um, does Trump's personality and the way he does things make you more likely to vote for him or less likely to vote for him? Mm-hmm. And uh, 60% of the people said less likely. And of course, those are the people that don't vote for him anyway. Um, then 30% said it didn't make any difference. Yeah. And only 12% said it made it more likely that they would vote for him. So those are the ones that like that kind of a leader. And to me, Trump is a kind of an old-fashioned leader uh, from a couple centuries ago. You know, I'm right. I'm always right. I know everything smarter than anybody else. It's sort of not a, not a king, not a hard military king kind of leader, but, but you know, somebody who, who likes everybody to say that they know exactly what's going on and feels that way, I think, quite sincerely about himself. Um, so I thought that was very interesting because it, it, it doesn't indicate that a large percentage of the population wants that kind of a personality to lead, but they like the, the, what he's doing. They like the rules that he's changed, the, the way that he takes down the elite, everybody in that group probably likes. Um, but, but I think it's a lot more hopeful, that statistic, than what people are worried about, that there will be somebody who's even worse than Trump. And then, you know, moving in that direction. Moving, moving further and further to a hard right point of view. I don't, I don't see that happening in the United States. So, but it's interesting because it, it reminds me when you describe the way the people feel about it. It reminds me of how people felt about the kings and the aristocrats. You know, way back then, they're in charge. We can, we, they never listen to us. They don't hear if we're hungry. They don't hear. They don't hear anything about what's going on in our lives. They don't even know what we're doing. Right. So, it's, I, I think that's quite right, and and I think the. Um... I mean, I shouldn't get involved in a foreign election, but up until you know, up until COVID, which has changed a lot of a lot of a lot of things in a lot of ways. But up until then, uh, the Trump record, you know, presidents, it's on their watch. Um, w- what credit you get for the economy? The economy was, you know, unemployment was very low after the crash of two thousand and eight. Wages had come back. Stock market mysteriously, certainly the American one was sky high. Assets mm. looked pretty good, and in terms of foreign policy, um, this may not you know, be liberal conservative doctrine, but you know Trump did a lot of things that actually were quite popular: um, mm. winding down in Afghanistan, standing up to China, um, you know, being tough on trade. Um, this is, it's, it's not a bad package. And if you were a liberal conservative worried about the hard right, that isn't, I would think, the most obvious place to start because mm-hmm. you know, the hard right can say, well, you know, we're actually taking care of business, right. uh, which conservatives are always happy to hear. I think much more worrying is the... Um, uh, is the defense of liberal values, if you will, and um, free speech, um, uh, and what I call the sort of soft power of liberal democracy in the world. Mm-hmm. I think I think that is something that, that as it were, we, we ought to be concerned about. 
I think, uh, you know, maybe talk to this, uh, I, I, since you brought the COVID crisis a couple of times. So China has, um, you know, sort of their, their whole political tradition is outside of the realm of, of how Europeans have been doing things anyway. And um, they had, I mean, they were the source of the, of the COVID crisis, uh, but the way they handled it was very different. And they have been trying to say our way of doing things, which which is to be, have an authoritarian government, but allow people to make decisions, sort of what Deng Xiaoping put in place, um, you know, has is something that we want to continue and has actually worked a lot better than that chaos of, of democracy. And it seems to me that the way that the COVID crisis has been handled, if it continues along this line, they might, you know, make that argument even more popular. Yeah. I think... I, Sort of lesson. I, I I worked in different countries as a journalist, and I was always struck by how how difficult it is to import one country into another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see what I mean? That that you know the the, the way people um, the way people do things, um, even among the liberal democracies, is mm-hmm. subtly different. And um, you know so, somehow in in many ways we all wish we could be Denmark, but. Um, we're not going to be. Um, similarly, we wish in some ways that we could be as effective um, at considerable cost, let's not forget, um, mm. as effective as the Chinese at organizing mm. you know, large-scale projects, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the Belt Road or whatever it's called, or dealing with COVID. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we'd love that because it seems that we're not terribly good at it. But mm-hmm. I stress seems because when you look at liberal democratic history, when we really get engaged, we become implacable and mm-hmm. quite frightening. If you look back to the Second World War, for example, yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to be historically, you know, take a kind of Spenglerian um, uh, piece of futurology and say what's going to happen, then you might well say, well, you know, that was then and liberal democracies, we really kind of lost lost it and we're weary and we're out of gas and so on and so forth. I don't know whether that's true or not. I, I can't do that kind of speculation. But I, I, I do know that when, when liberal democracies are really pressed, they can, you know, they have quite frightening resources. Well, they, um, can, they can elicit the free will cooperation of their people. And, yeah. and uh, it, it's useful if you're authoritarian, if you've got control, the people are afraid of you. Um, and you can make things happen fast because you're organized and so on. Uh, but I don't think you can beat the, the uh, free will cooperation of a people that are that are immensely uh, interested in accomplishing something. So it's just the same same idea that has made uh, capitalism uh, more effective. The more freedom people have to, to, to engage. I mean, that's only one of the things. I, I also think capitalism is effective because it redirected all that male competitive energy from, from wars, you know, between earls and dukes to, to uh, uh, financial economic wars, which actually produce something rather than destroy something. So and there's, there are many other elements to why any institution works. But um, let's fill in, we have, we have some time, but let's fill in. We kind of went to the past and we went to the present. But uh, let's let's back up a little bit. The, sure. How did Thatcher and Reagan, you know, I mean, because you you lay it out how it built up in in both the United States and and uh, Britain, and uh, because of our time, we'll, we'll have to ignore France and Germany for a while. We've we sure. covered a little bit of that. But but how did that happen? Because that was 
you know, as, as someone said, you know, William F. Buckley was involved. There are so many different people that had a path to play, a part to play in the path that brought us to that. But they came almost at exactly the same time, which was interesting. They did. Yeah. And they so, had very they, they came at the same time. They, they liked each other. They talked to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think there were, um, how much time do we have, by the way? Just, uh, let's see, uh, about 15 minutes, 10, 12, 15. Okay, good. Um, okay. so uh, always dangerous to say three things because one's usually forgotten the third thing. But anyway, I think there were, th uh, there were several elements. One was um, straightforwardly economic. If you remember back to the, to the 1970s, it was in many ways a dismal decade of stagflation, this sort of unsuspect, un, un, unexpected combination of yeah. huge inflation and um, very wide unemployment. And this was a terrible shock after roughly three decades of extraordinary um, prosperity in advance. So mm. that was one thing. Um, another element was both in the United States in terms of, hard to say what exactly it was, it was a, a, a sense of the cultural discord of the 60s, criminality, a sense that society was getting out of hand in the United States. And in Britain, a slightly different version of that is that the, um, a great labor movement, the trade unions, um, were... Um, getting out of hand. Um, and I think those two elements, the sense that combined with terrible economic situation, society in trouble, um, that opened the door to really quite radical answers in the form of Thatcher and Reagan. But there was a, a third element, which was um, a restoration of conservative intellectual confidence. Mm -hmm. And it came in two um, sort of actually quite separate streams. Um, there was the, the free marketeers who, you know, carried their Friedrich Hayek in their hand like Mao's <laughs> book. And, and um, you know, this was the gospel that would solve everything. Go government was the problem. Yep. Um, but on the other hand, there were um, the neoconservatives who... Um, were uh, you know, intellectuals rooted in New York, but they much more concentrated on the social decay, on the cultural contradictions of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Indeed, one of them, I think um, it was Irving Kristol, who mm -hmm. actually boasted of never having read Hayek, whom he thought of as being you know, a frightful, um, dogmatic, doctrinaire um, <laughs> economist who didn't understand anything about politics. So, but it didn't matter. I mean, it was all grist of the mill and it enlivened the conversation. But these two streams, free market liberalism and a really quite kind of open-eyed critique of um, present-day society, I think contributed to the liberal, uh, sorry, the, the Thatcher-Reagan revolution. And if you remember both of them, they had not only a free market message, which was wonderful for business, um, you know, break the unions, let business do whatever they want. But they both of them had a very strong social message at the same time, Thatcher mm -hmm. with the unions, but also more generally with, um, you know, people should behave themselves, should take responsibility. And you had the same message in the United States. So I think for all those three reasons, economic, social and cultural, they kind of walked into a space that had been created. 
They, they both uh, used the Soviet Union as a foil. Um, and indeed, I mean, that's the, they, yeah. they had they had a perfect, I mean, they were pushing at an open door there. I mean, when Reagan yeah. said, Berlin Wall, open this door, uh, bring down this uh, wall, Mr. Gorbachev, he was pushing at an open door. I mean, the Soviet Union was close to collapse. Yeah. But the framework of the Second Cold War was also very useful. Um, just to bring I mean, the French so back into, yeah, just to bring the French back. I'm not saying it's illusory. There was a, there was a genuine, long-lasting um, superpower struggle which involved you know, yeah. very dangerous. But um, that, 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 that's gone. And I think, interestingly, mm-hmm. um, just, just quickly to finish up, um, Reagan and Thatcher, um, they, it worked for a time, but mm-hmm. like every, almost everything in politics... It mm-hmm. kind of overshoots. It runs out of gas. Mm-hmm. And when it did, the hard right has stepped into the gap mm-hmm. because there isn't really anything among liberal conservatives that's replaced Thatcherism and Reaganism. So um, I was going to mention uh, that a French, um, a French writer in the early 70s, because I read her then, uh, predicted that the Soviet Union would collapse because of its uh, ethnicities uh, on the outskirts. And so as long as the ethnicities were there, um, she predicted the Soviet Union would not be able to hold together uh, for more than 15 to 20 more years, and which was a very good prediction at the time. So that was one element that was going on. Um, I will tell a story that, that uh, Edmund has in his book while he's frozen. Uh, he tells a great story about... Um, Margaret Thatcher going to uh, Russia, uh, to Moscow, and in the British embassy, she had a dinner for um, Gorbachev and his wife, Raisin. And in the library at the British embassy, there was, um, of course, the library, and Raisin was invited in, and uh, Margaret Thatcher noticed that the first book she picked up was Hobbes' Leviathan, so uh, Margaret Thatcher took that as an example uh, that, that uh, Rice and the Gorbachevs must be of that ilk, you know, the, the, the Hobbesian approach to life, that, that life is nasty, short, and brutish. Um, and sometimes that's considered a conservative form of thought, but it's, it's uh, more on a, on, a, on a less liberal point of view. So um, I, I wanted, I'll, I'll pick up a couple other themes that Edmund had. Uh, we're, we're nearly at the end of the time, and just in case we don't get him back, um, he covers the, the 19th century, how that developed in all four other countries. He covers the 20th century. Uh, the most important point he makes, I think, is that political parties really didn't get started until the 19th century. So before that, uh, there was conservative thought. If you go back to Plato and, 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 and Rome, ancient Rome, uh, Aristotle, there was a lot of thought about keeping things conservative. Uh, Edmund, you're back. Good. So I'm back. Maybe, maybe you can tell the story of Raisa Gorbachev. I, I, I told it very briefly uh, while you were frozen. Um, but uh, the story where, where uh, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher is in Moscow, um, I, I thought it was a very charming story. So, Well, it was, it was part of a, a bit at the end of the book that, uh, that mm-hmm. a, a professor who, who read a draft advised me uh, to put the chapter at the end of the book, which I did. Uh, it's about the, the philosophical sources of conservative thought. Right. And 
Uh, I gave the example, the, the point was to be aware of people who say, oh, you can find conservatism in Plato or Aristotle or um, Machiavelli right. or whoever. Be very careful with that. The, anyway, um, and the example was Hobbes, um, the um, 17th century English um, thinker. And, you know, he's being claimed by the liberals, by the left, by the right, by everybody. Mm -hmm. And Thatcher in her memoirs tells a story of being at dinner in the British Embassy in Moscow um, towards the end of the Soviet Union with the Gorbachevs, with um, Mikhail Gorbachev and his wife, Amarizu. And her briefing notes from the Foreign Office say that um, unlike her husband, um, she is um, a kind of out-and-out -out serious Marxist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Possibly because she had a kind of twinkly sense of humor, Margaret Thatcher. She tells the story with a bit mm -hmm. of second degree. But anyway, um, in the British Embassy's very well-stocked library, the one book that lights on Reza Gorbachev's eyes to pick out and peruse uh, while they're having drinks, waiting for dinner and admiring the library is Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, which convinces Thatcher, yes, she is indeed a serious Marxist. Serious Marxist, yeah. <laughs> Well, we have time for one more thing, as long as we're talking about uh, Russia. I have a big question for you as a left-wing liberal, as you identify as. Um, it, it seems to me, having uh, studied the Soviet Union a lot, and I studied Russia yes. and so on behind b before, and I spent a summer there back in 1973, uh, that Putin is, is in, a, in another different tradition, uh, which is that the Russians are always complaining that the Europeans don't accept them as Europeans. Um, yeah. And that we're, we're part of the European culture. Why don't you accept us as a, like the youngest brother in a, in, a, in a family gets kicked off to America or whatever in a British family? Um, that we are always treated this way. Do you think, uh, in spite of uh, the authoritarian tendencies and all the other tendencies, do you think that Russia has a good chance of becoming part of the liberal democracy? Give, give it 50 years, okay? A part of the liberal democracy and part of European uh, culture again, as they were in the 19th century when, when it was all monarchical everywhere and their, their art, their literature, their music uh, was just part of what everybody did in Europe, right? So do you think that we can return to that period of time and whether that was, that's a useful outcome or... I mean, I know well, I, I wouldn't rule it out because on the whole, it's, a, it's unwise to rule things out. But I think... Yeah. Two things. Russia in the 19th century, after all, there was this highly Europeanized French-speaking elite, um, to use an abused word, um, and then you know, a, a great mass of the common people who, who were really kind of excluded from the argument. And it had a, a very different history mm -hmm. from the, um, the European liberal democracies. Um, clearly, there are, there are possibilities here, and there are incredibly brave um, opposition movements in uh, Russia at the moment. But I have to say, it doesn't look as if the road that Putin takes, is, is taking, um, is leading to anything resembling um, a modern Western European liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, so, so well, if I, that is happen, yeah. I mean, there are, there are, you know, there are Russians on whom it can draw, but mm -hmm. the history of, um, the the um, the rampant pri the, the, the privatizations and the um, sort of the, the rise of a kleptocracy after um, the end of the Soviet Union 1990 
I mean, that, that is not a very promising basis, I'm afraid. Maybe uh, from, from what I've uh, studied and read, and I did a, a deal there too, um, in the early 2000s, uh, what the Russian government under Yeltsin decided was that they, the only people that they had that were, were experienced with capitalism were their black marketeers. <laughs> and, and so they had to do something to prevent them from taking over everything. So they took the assets and put them in the hands of people they could trust, uh, yes. so to speak, and, and, and people who showed some leadership and often very young people like the, the man who ran Yukos. Uh, uh, yeah. He was only 25 when he was put in charge and did a good job with it, obviously, before they took it away from him again. But, uh, <laughs> but that approach, uh, you know, it was, was, you know, the switch, the switch over by Russia was so quick from from uh, communism to capitalism that that they as you said kleptocracy was the result because the people with experience were that whereas the the chinese seem to be very slowly taking all of their assets and putting them into corporations that are world beating and, and making sure that their children are on the boards of directors yeah uh, it's, a, it's a much longer uh, process well, i mean you, you you would know this much much better than i um i, I never worked in russia but um I mean, for these big economic units in the, in, in the Soviet Union to, mm -hmm. sorry, in, in Russia, to evolve, I mean, they, they do need to be, there needs to be much, you know, broader share ownership and so on. Right. To evolve into anything that we're familiar with as kind of market capitalism. Yeah, and they did, they, they tried that. Uh, during Yeltsin, they they gave everybody shares, but it was only uh, it was only a, a six months later that that people had gone around and bought up all those shares and cashed them all out, and that's how they got control of all kinds of companies. Sorry, sort of remind me of Mark Twain's comment, you know, that uh, about socialism when it first started. So, well, sure, we should take all the money and divide it equally among everybody in the world, but three years later, it'll be back in the same hands it was. <laughs> I mean, there were a few lone voices. I, I remember at the time of the transition saying, that, you know, there are two distinct there are two distinct operations here. There is the creation of markets among mm. big concerns, and the creation of ownership, wide ownership. Right. And these were t these, these problems were kind of blended into one. And maybe if they had been phased, it's easy to say at this distance, yeah. you know, outcomes might have been different. Yeah, Goldman Sachs might not have been the best advisors for that deal. Well, you uh, didn't hear a lot of that from the great investment banks, it's true. But there were a few lone voices who were saying, hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think, I mean, you, you would know this better than I. I think kind of the, the economic e economists arguing the what ifs now yeah. do give slightly more um, credence to the phase it. It should have been phased view. Well, that was a, a, a great conversation, and there's so much more in your book. I mean, we could, really, we could really go, go on a lot. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. So thank you very, very much, Edmund. Um, and so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Not very many years by British standards, but not too bad for San Francisco. Thanks for, again for joining really us. really enjoyed talking yeah. to you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.